0: ...and Saul acts to the Lord and is is faithful, etc. At chapter 12, you have Samuel's farewell address, which of course Samuel is a key figure. The book's named after him, obviously, and the whole text of 1 Samuel begins with the birth of Samuel and with then the downfall of Eli and his household you then have this parallel where Saul is anointed, and then you're going to have the downfall of Saul and his household. And so you see these cycles in the book of 1 Samuel. One of the uh, the major theological themes of 1 Samuel, as as we've discussed quite a bit previously, is this theme of the Great Reversal uh, manifest in Hannah's song and then manifest in the presentation of the narrative itself at many and various points. Um, you see uh, you see Saul who is in and of himself uh, brought high that is the low are brought up and then when he turns from the Lord the high are brought down you see Samuel who is this miracle child given to Hannah who is, who is lowly and barren and then Hannah through the birth of this great prophet this miracle child of God she is raised up Samuel who is himself nothing is raised up and so you have this: the the low are made high, and the higher made low. These themes recurring throughout, which of course ultimately point us to uh, to Jesus' own uh, miracle birth, where he is nothing, and and yet he is exalted, and his name is higher than every name. And Mary is nothing, and yet all generations now call her blessed. So this same kind of reversal theme pushes forward and reveals, you know, the the manifest facts of the New Testament. Um, you know, probably a better way to look at this, as is, is I've tried to speak to, is you know, Samuel is written and these events are dictated by God and the history is spelled out precisely to reveal Christ. And so to really see Christ um, behind this text and, and shining forward through this text is probably a more accurate way than to see this text made sort of concrete and pointing then to Christ um, and his incarnation, and those types of events. Probably a good way, as good as any, to, to see this text. So, um, that digression aside, you know, back just trying to get a sweeping flow and view of 1 Samuel, you have Samuel's farewell address in chapter 12. Um, you've got, uh, and so, so obviously there you've got this major theme, that the people, in choosing to have an earthly king, have rejected Yahweh as their king. Then we're going to find out how the earthly kings all failed them. That's a very abbreviated way to put it, pointing to the necessity to indeed have Yahweh as their king, that is, specifically to have Jesus as their king, and Jesus as their savior, Jesus as the one who fights for them. And so all of those themes present herein. Um, in chapter 13 then we are introduced to uh, the uh, sort of the reign and kingship of Saul and the way I explained this last week I'll again just briefly do here the events of chapter 13 and following are really indicative and iconic of Saul's Reign. There are these key moments that sort of embody his reign and kingship, and that's what's brought. If you if you just, I think if you read the text too quickly, you might see you might you might it might look as though wow that Saul did this one thing and 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 the Lord you know nailed him for that. No, that's not a good way to read it. Um, As as you see beginning at chapter thirteen, you know there's this. There's these ellipses regarding Saul's reign, but we do know he reigned uh, for a a large period of time, and in that period of time was unfaithful in many and various ways, and then that is sort of embodied in these events that we have. Uh, Chapter 13, we start to see the um, disintegration of, of Saul's character, if you will, even further. Uh, and, and in manifest ways, they're going to ultimately lead to his downfall, just become more, more apparent as we go through the narrative. Um, for example, his son, uh, Jonathan, wins this battle in chapter 13. We're in the early verses. And, and chapter 13, verse 4, Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the Philistines. So we're going to see this as a theme recurring in, in the materials we'll cover today. And that is that Saul is becoming less and less the humble servant of the Lord insofar as he ever was and more and more egotistical, egocentric, demanding the praise for himself. Very much cynical, very much the embodiment of one who pays lip service to the Lord while while rejecting him, while rejecting the Lord. We're going to see that in Spades in the new material. So in chapter thirteen, major event. After Jonathan's victory over the Philistines, the Philistines decide it's time for all-out war against Israel. They amass a force that's so great that Israel's basically reduced to hiding. In that time, uh, Saul is you know he's he's wondering what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to meet with Samuel. Samuel's supposed to offer the sacrifice. They're supposed to then hear from the Lord what it is they're going to do. Well, Samuel is delayed, and Saul takes things into his own hands and offers the sacrifice himself. Again, showing just a complete cynicism toward God, as if he's not dealing with the living God at all, as if God's order and commandment don't matter at all. He just sees it as, well, I've got to do, I've got to do X to get Y. I've got to do Y to get Z. The sacrifice has to be done so I can get God's advice so I can go ahead and win, which is really what I want to do and so i'm just who cares who does the sacrifice i'll just do it now it's done good now we can get on with the thing it's that kind of attitude that kind of cynicism and um, pragmatism might even be the right word for it Um, this ex opera operato is how we call it in the language of the lutheran confessions just this doing of the deed itself there's no respect for god There's just this sense of, okay, if I push button Y, then I get reward Z. And so if I do this sacrifice myself, we can get on with the whole thing and I can win. All of that in in chapter 13. Of course, the Lord does not take kindly to this. And you can see then um, in verse 13, Samuel then comes and rebukes Saul. You have done foolishly. Chapter 13, verse 13. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. That is, you'd be in the line of, you know, you would be, um, you would be uh, connected with a Christ. You would be, uh, you know, and, and this kingship of yours would reflect Christ's kingship. And that's going to be gone. I mean, Saul's going to be an example of what Christ is not. Verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So here, of course, is the first allusion to David, and the throne of David will indeed endure forever. He does indeed, not, not only is he in the line of Christ, but he shows forth um, in a positive way um, the 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 office and kingship of Christ. We'll talk about that more, how David is both a positive example and a negative example of who Christ is, obviously, in David's life. He was a sinner, and that's well known. Uh, but we'll talk about that as we get to his, his person. Okay, the, the fact that Israel is poorly armed, and really, earthly speaking, has no chance against this, Philistine, against this Philistine army, is reiterated toward the end of chapter 13, where it's said that only Saul and Jonathan have swords. Nobody else in, in the entire army of Israel has even has swords at this point. Um, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all Israel. They had to go over to the Philistines. Israel was way far behind technologically. They wouldn't have chariots for like two more generations, and the Philistines had chariots. If they wanted their weapons and even their farming equipment sharpened, they had to go over to the Philistines to have that done. So Israel was in in desperate and dire need of God. Now, let's just just pick up and run through chapter 14, verse 1, because we left off um, in this beginning part of chapter 14, maybe about I don't know 20 verses in or so let's just pick up here we'll run through it quickly again I won't for those of you who were able to participate last week even even though there may not be a recording I won't go into much detail here just not to bore you to tears chapter 14 verse 1 one day Jonathan the son of Saul said to the young man who carried his armor come let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side but he did not tell his father Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave, or as we mentioned last week, under the pomegranate tree is also um, a possible, a possible uh, in reading there. And this at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh wearing an ephod." Now the key is here is that Ahijah is brought into the narrative and he is a relative of Eli and that brings to mind, this has the effect and impact of bringing to mind the fall of the house of Eli um, due to their unfaithfulness. Now you're going to have the fall of Saul due to his unfaithfulness. We continue with the end of verse three, and the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of one was Bozez and the name of the other, Sana. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Um, again, we went into a long discourse last week about how this is reference to the Philistines, but really ought to be considered as a, as a theological category to these unbelievers, to these people who have rejected um, the gospel of God, who have rejected the promise that there's going to be one who comes and crushes the serpent's head, one born of Abraham, through whom all the sons of the earth will be blessed. Um, This has been rejected. Circumcision has been rejected. These are people who reject the gospel and reject God, and thus ally themselves with Satan. So, uh, come let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And again, that line is in stark contrast with Saul, who certainly trusts earthly might, um, who does not give credit to God. Jonathan, in in this part of the narrative, is really presented as the anti-Saul. He's humble. He understands that it's the Lord who does it. He understands that it's not any power of man. Um, or any reason of man, it's solely up to God. Verse 7, and his armor bearer said to him, that is to Jonathan, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. Now here, uh, Jonathan sort of Does this, does this, if they do the one thing, then it's not God's will. If they do the other, then it is God's will. And so this is how he discerns God's will in the matter. Verse 9 If they said to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And again, this is all an insult. You know, they're crawling out from under the rocks like bugs or something like that would be an equivalent. Verse 12, and the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. Uh, Which is, um, yeah, I don't know how, let me see how the study note renders that politely. Um, We're going to teach you a lesson. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. So this was precisely the sign that Jonathan had established ahead of time, that if this is how it goes down, then the Lord has given us. This is proof and testimony that the Lord has given us, given them into our hand. So, verse 13, Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor-bearer after him. So they are literally climbing up the side of this... A rocky hillside, a rocky mountainside, then we read, And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made killed about twenty men within, as it were, half a furrow's length and in an acre of land. Um, So again, the study note points out this is a narrow passage. That's how Jonathan and his armor-bearer, though they were significantly outnumbered, um, were able to defeat these 20 men, just the two of them. It was narrow enough they could take them on one or two at a time. Uh, So so this is the the spark or the match that is lit and uh, starts the whole forest fire against the Philistines here. Verse 15, And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. So here the Lord uses Jonathan's faithfulness, uh, blesses him in this victory, and then as a panic is spreading throughout, um, God sends this earthquake And this earthquake just increases the panic all the more to where the Philistines are in a frenzy. So, supernatural uh, event going on here. God fighting for his people once more. Verse 16, and it's here in in this section that we basically left off last week. And the watchman of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. That's the multitude of Philistines, obviously. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who is gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, um, again, this is the descendant of Eli, bring the ark of God here. Which not, much is, not too much is made of this, but again, in the, in the context of, of Samuel, this is a big mistake um, in the context of Judges and Samuel. This is a big mistake to bring the Ark of God without the without the Lord saying so. I mean, this is how the Philistines captured the Ark. Um, this is how Eli died earlier in, in Samuel. Like this, this is not something you do. So, what we're seeing here symbolically, even though it's not it's just stated outright, with the presence of a descendant of Eli and with this business with the Ark being brought again um, without the Lord, we're seeing the corruption and demise of Saul, that the sins of the past are repeating themselves in Saul and thus the punishments of the past are going to be found, uh, laid upon Saul. All right, so bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. And we talked um, last week uh, what an insult this was. The study note says, Saul felt that waiting for the Lord's directive might jeopardize his chance for victory. Such interruption of a priestly activity was unprecedented unprecedented and unthinkable. So again here we see the cynicism of Saul toward the things of the Lord. You know the priest is is in the middle of doing his thing, and Saul is like, "Hey, I can see that the Philistines are in a panic. Now's the time to strike. We've got no time to wait for the Lord. Uh, it's not the I mean, implicit therein is it's not the Lord who delivers us. Um, contra Jonathan, it's it's me who delivers us. So there's an egotism and idolatry on the one hand. The other side, the other hand, is a cynicism toward God and the things of God. Verse 30, Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. I mean, again, this to some extent this can have a human explanation, but I don't know. There's certainly, certainly, we ought to be thinking about the hand of God when we see these examples in scripture where a whole army is thrown into such tumult and chaos that it's fighting itself. I mean, it's hard to even comprehend that happening unless this is a supernatural event. So I think we ought to see it as such. This is the hand of God. Um, it can, verse 20 continues, and there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. I, this, is, I mean, this is a fascinating little detail, but apparently some of the Hebrews had decided to go over preemptively to the side of the Philistines. Um, if you can't beat them, join them, I guess complete unfaithfulness, complete disrespect toward Yahweh. Um, they joined the Philistines and were going to fight against their, their kinsmen, the Hebrews, because uh, they thought that that was the winning side. <laughs> oh. Well, <I> <laughs> I'll continue on. Um, so they finally turned back and end up fighting with Saul and Jonathan. Verse 22, likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. Verse 23, so the Lord saved Israel that day. And again, I think that that's a statement as to all this, uh, not, only, not only the sign given to Jonathan, but Jonathan's victory over the 20, followed by the, pa- the, the panic, followed by the earthquake, followed by the greater panic, followed by everyone attacking themselves. Um, so the Lord saved Israel that day. Verse 23, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. All right. So despite Saul, the Lord gives them the victory. And he does so through Jonathan, not through Saul. Verse 24, And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. All right, so as not to interrupt the preceding narrative, now we're given some background information about what was going on behind the scenes as it were. And not only is Saul you know, cynical and you know, basically tells the priest not to bother, he's got everything in his, in his control, he's also en- engaged in this oath and laid this oath on his people, you know, again, while, while the Philistines are there. And the nature of the oath, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. You know, In other words, Saul, in seeing that the Philistines are in chaos, is so self-assured of his victory, he lays, the, lays this oath on his people, um, you cannot eat food until you've won the battle. And then look at this, look at this, until I am avenged on my enemies. Um, if you if you have an eye for this, uh, you'll fi- you'll start to find this everywhere. Maybe even more places than I'll point out, uh, and that is that Saul increasingly does not see the Lord and does not see himself as the anointed of the Lord and does not see himself as the as the king of the Lord's people. He increasingly sees himself as. Uh, me, my, my own, I'm the king, I need vengeance, these are my people, this is my kingdom, I'll do as I see fit. In other words, very much uh, full of himself, very much self-centered. And so you certainly see that in the, in the way he phrases this oath. Until it is evening and, and the Lord is avenged upon his enemies, and the Lord has victory? No, until I am avenged on my enemies. I mean, again, as if this whole thing were some personal grudge and and his pride required him to be avenged on his enemies. It's indicative of Saul's fall. So none of the people had tasted food. Verse 25, Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. (laughs) Which, of course, there's some irony here because the honey on the ground of the forest is provided by the Lord. Um, But because of Saul's uh, rash oath and rash vow uh, they're not able to eat it so they, <laughs> so they've got to you know they're starving for sustenance and they're walking through this forest that's filled with sustenance but they're not allowed to because of the foolishness of their king who is out for personal vengeance verse 26 and when the people entered the forest behold the honey was dropping but no one put his hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with an oath. And again, look what the charge is. Cursed be the man. That's effectively a death sentence on anyone who eats. And so Jonathan did not hear his father charge the people with the oath. So he's in mortal danger here due to his ignorance. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand, And dipped it in the honeycomb, and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Which seems to be an expression, simply, he became energized, reinvigorated, uh, full of life. I think that that's basically how the, yeah, he was refreshed, his strength renewed. Verse 28, then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found, so now we're given more indication that this honey uh, is certainly the gift of God and produced by God, and yet it's the spoil of their enemies. And so, um, you know, as they're marching forward under this oath, uh, they're they're finding all of their enemies' honey that they had cultivated, and they're eating that honey, or or I mean, Jonathan eats that honey, and they're longing to eat that honey, but Saul has arbitrarily, artificially, selfishly on the basis of his own pride forbidden them so again verse 30 how much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found for now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great you know, you can see that they're still in the middle of this battle we've kind of gone back in time and we're, we're looking at it now from this angle of the vow Verse thirty-one: They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. You know, which is again, how do you want your how do you want your army to be faint? No, certainly not strong. And there's you know there's almost a kind of hint of the oppression of a Pharaoh on the on the people, the oppression of Saul on his people just making, it, making their labor harder than it needs to be because of his own ego. Um, there's kind of a hint of that theme going on here. Verse 32, The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. All right, now things go from bad to worse. Um, The study note points out that eating the animals with the blood, I mean, first of all, this is like the livestock of the Philistines, and then eating it with the blood, this is unclean behavior. As the study note says, Mosaic law forbid this. Um, They had to drain the blood out of the animals first before they were allowed to consume them. So again, just kind of look at this, look at how one thing leads to another, and this Arbitrary, egocentric uh, oath on the part of of Saul that he afflicts the people with um, leads them in in their state of desperation and faintness to transgress against the Lord. Now, I suppose there's much that could be made here too about obeying man instead of God. And yeah, there's that certainly that theme here. Um, because in their out of their obedience to Saul, they end up being disobedient to the Lord. So the people ate them with the blood. That's verse thirty-two, and then verse thirty-three. Then they told Saul, "Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood." And he said, "You have dealt treacherously." I mean, look, he he takes no completely self-aware. I mean, no self-awareness that he's the cause of this. You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourself among the people, and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep, and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Okay, so this killing them on the on the great stone, this was um, this allowed it to be uh, the the blood could be drained, making it acceptable for eating, and then yeah, and then this is his first altar, which we're we're a long ways into the reign, decades into the reign of Saul, and he hasn't yet built an altar to the Lord, despite as we're going to find out his many military victories, um, just. Thanklessness, and a sense that he's the guy who's running the show, and he's the guy who ought to get the credit. (laughs) Even when he's not exactly the guy who should get the credit, he still thinks he should get the credit. So here he builds an altar to the Lord, and it was the very first, which is a rather pathetic statement. All right, verse 36. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night, and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today, for as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. Uh, but there was not a man among the people who answered him. All right, if you look at the study note on verse uh, thirty-nine through forty-two, it says um, this is going to tell us what they do about what they do next. I think it's worthwhile having in our minds ahead of time. Fascinating note. Almost all we know about how the sacred lot operated comes from this and the following verses. It seems that the technique used in determining God's will involved questions that could be answered by yes or no. Answers were given by means of the Urim and Thummim, which may have been sticks, some kind of dice, or black and white stones. So again, we don't even know what the Urim and Thummim are, some mechanism for casting lots and it was believed, rightfully so, that when um, the the lots were cast, um, this was the Lord's will and and then as this note seems to indicate, it it seemed to be some way in which they could ask yes-no questions, cast the Urim and, and Thummim and receive their yes or no answer. It's all rather strange to us, but this was uh this was common this was the the way of doing things um, and and biblically, even in the New Testament, you see a, a casting of lots for Matthias who fills the position of Judas iscariot um, i've I've mused that sometimes we i rather than for for pastors and churches rather than this interview process and treating it as if you know this was anything but divine and just purely human, perhaps we'd be better off in finding a a man or two, a candidate or two that we think would serve good in in that church and then cast a lot and let that be be taken as the Lord's will, um, that that's that's the man he's calling. Well, that aside, um, the Lord doesn't answer Saul, so Saul says, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. And there is an ironic statement, of course. Uh, At the the point in time in which Saul makes the statement, he has no idea that Saul has indeed broken the vow. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Verse 40. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you, that is, proceed, go ahead. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. So, you know, here you see not so much a yes or no as the study notes seem to indicate, but it's more like, yeah, if it's Urim, you know, if it turns up Urim, so that's like, is that one side of the thing and Thummim's the other side? You know, almost like a quarter. If it's heads, uh, you know, it's Jonathan and my son. If it's tails, it's the people. Who knows? But anyway, he says, if this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Okay, so in other words, they cast the lot, and the the lot was Urim. Again, we don't know exactly what this means, um, but the the lot was Urim, thus pointing that the problem was with Jonathan or Saul. Thus, uh, Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Verse 42, then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. So they repeated the process. Um, by the way, we've seen this mechanism at work uh, earlier in, in 1 Samuel. I mean, this was, this was pretty much the, the mechanism that was used, as best we can tell, to elect uh, uh, Saul himself as king. Verse 43, then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the shaft that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And here you see an amazing statement on the part of Jonathan. Jonathan doesn't say the truth, which is the truth is I was ignorant. I did it in ignorance. I didn't mean to have mercy. He just simply says, I did it. Here I am. If it's in best service of God, if it's in best service of his of His people, I will die, you know, without all that language, without all that verbiage. But that's plainly what he says. It was me. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. That is to say, again, you have this rash kind of, Oath and vow taken that like if I don't execute you, Jonathan, let that execution fall upon me. Which hell, I don't know. This is kind of an amazing statement, especially when you compare it to like how how David felt about his son uh, Absalom. Um, Absalom, who had absolutely, I mean, you could not possibly more betray a person than Absalom betrayed David, and yet David um, did not want. Absalom to die. Uh, <laughs> Here's by contrast, Saul's son Jonathan, it's like, you didn't do what I said in terms of eating. And of course, Jonathan sinned in complete ignorance, rebelled against him in complete ignorance. And now Saul says, Yeah, you're going to die. I especially just very fascinating in the. Yeah, well, I won't go down that rabbit hole. But yeah, you just see, you just see again, this is not. Um, positive for Saul. Verse 45 bears that out. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. You know, this is a really, really complex and interesting episode, and I simply don't want to go through it all and belabor it all. Interesting because in what there's all these questions that have to be worked out. It seems to be the case that that God, um, back in uh, verse 37, did not answer Saul then, and this is what I mean by it seems to be the case, that's obvious. It seems to be the case that Saul takes this as a sign that Jonathan has sinned against him and thus against God. It seems to be the case that this is a misinterpretation. That God, rather, is setting up precisely this whole thing where Saul is shown to be completely arbitrary in his actions. That this command came from Saul not from God, that Jonathan hasn't sinned, that it would in fact have been murder for Saul to kill Jonathan on the basis of this commandment of men, this commandment that came from his own head. And this is all borne out by the fact that God never punishes Jonathan. In fact, the people rebuke Saul and directly contradict him. And effectively, the whole people said, over our dead body will you take Jonathan. So again, this is, com- this is a, a complex thing, and there are many you know, questions to fetch out here, but that seems to be what's going on. Is this whole, the Lord set this whole thing up in order to rebuke Saul for his pride and arrogance, rebuke Saul for putting a death sentence over his people for this oath that he himself concocted. It did not come from the Lord. You know, it comes to what our Lord Jesus says, in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the precepts of men. This is a prototype of that, to be sure. All right, well, and, and then anytime you have, you have a father and the son and death and that kind of thing, you have opportunity to reflect on the nature of uh, either how like or how unlike it is um, Here you have something that is quite unlike the heavenly father giving his son uh, into death and his son willingly go into death. There's a point of positivity where Jonathan's willing to go into death for the good of the nation. God the father giving his son, his son giving himself willingly into death for the salvation of the people. Um, You have those those themes quite distorted here, Um, but that's just the point. They're distorted. They're only sorted out correctly in the person of Christ Jesus. All right. um, Yeah, the people rebuke uh, Saul. They say, Jonathan shall not die. There's no way. And then they attribute to him this salvation. And Jonathan, of course, as we have seen, attributes it not to himself, but to the Lord. Then we're given this uh, statement in the the very last sentence of verse 45, so the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. All right, verse 46, then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines went to their own place. I suppose we should say too that the way that Saul put this is like, remember what he says, he says, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. That is, like, if you don't die, it's going to be me who dies, Uh, Like or the Lord, do this to me. I mean, the whole thing just makes Saul end up looking like a complete fool. The whole thing. And in a sense, he brings judgment upon himself with that statement, because the people exonerate Jonathan. Jonathan does not die. The implication from uh, Saul's own idolatrous cynical lips is the Lord do so to me so um, you've got that hanging out there too this is a major rebuke all right so this whole episode is given again if you just flip back to 13 we're sort of given this you know chapter 13 verse 1 we're so and 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 following we're sort of given this um, no it's just verse one this sort of confusing statement about the reign of Saul. We're told that Jonathan is is in the army. That means years and years have passed. We don't even know of Jonathan up to this point. So in other words, this whole episode in chapter 13 and chapter 14, up until the point at which we've come, is representative of decades of Saul's kingship. Um, Cynicism, doing his own thing, Yeah, certainly worthy of being deposed from office. A disaster. Not unlike what God and Samuel had told the people it would be. Now in verse 47 of chapter 14, we sort of zoom back out or flip the page or the scene changes and we're given just a statement of what Saul is known for, what his kingship is known for. And so you see really the whole of his kingship now described um, very plainly in militaristic terms. So verse 47, When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly, and struck the Amalekites, and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. So again, this this is the life in the promised land after they've done the major conquests. There are still these pockets of people that they're given to eradicate because of their unfaithfulness to God. In some instances, their unwillingness to eradicate the people. Rather, they win the victory and just um, take their riches. These people grow in strength and God uses these other people to enslave Israel and punish Israel for their unfaithfulness. And so that's what's going on. Saul is a, a very strong military leader. He does valiantly. He's, uh, you know, largely victorious. Um, but we know that. But we know that despite his military victories, we know from earlier in 14 and chapter 13 uh, how things are really going. Not good. All right. And then in 49 we get to know some of Saul's uh, chapter 14 verse 49. That is, we get to know some of Saul's uh, family. And again, this is, like I said, it's like 13 sort of gives us, like, this is what his ministry was. Now here's an episode that's indicative of what his ministry was. We sort of reset and do the same thing here where, you know, 47 through, um, maybe it's 47 through 52. And it's just kind of this restatement of his military victories, his family, that kind of thing, and then we immediately go into another instance that sort of recaps his entire failed kingship and his personal uh, in- increased personal failure. Yeah, to where he's uh, he's rejected by the Lord finally. Okay, so verse 49. Now, the sons of Saul were Jonathan, whom we've met, Ishvi, and Malkishua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger, Mikal. And of course, Mikal factors in later, because uh, David takes her as one of his wives. We do note this also with the study Bible, that David's, David's family tree is quite a bit more complex due to his own uh, sins. Uh, Saul's family tree is much more simple. He has these three sons and these two daughters. Verse 50, And the name of Saul's wife was Abinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz, And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Okay, on to 52. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Which, again, I think is in—it's not just a statement of fact. I mean, why do we need to know that? I think it's indicative of the fact that Saul sees his strength as coming not from the Lord, but from himself and his human relationships. That is, he sees his strength and his security in coming from man, not from God. I think that that's really the, the reason why that line is included. Chapter 15, verse 1. but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And your study note leads you back to chapter fourteen, verse forty-eight, which we which we just took a look at and covered. And this, of course, refers back to Moses uh, leading the people through um, this this area uh, on the way up out of um, up out of Egypt, and the Amalekites uh, attacked them and. In the meantime Amalekite culture has just been filled with idolatry you know inhuman behaviors uh, it's just this is God's judgment upon this people and certainly you know I think I think in our day and age we, we think that this is atrocious that God would do this I think that that view is atrocious personally God can judge whomever he wants he can he can execute temporal and eternal justice any way he wants and God is not unjust whatsoever and saying it's enough of this people. I mean was God unjust when he wiped off the the vast majority of the human race in the flood? Oh, he wasn't unjust. Is he unjust when he wipes off uh, the face of the earth of people? No, he's not unjust. He's the Lord. All things belong to him. On what throne are you going to sit in order to be able to judge him unjust and you yourself just? Yeah. So I think that that's sufficiently Uh, undoes our modern and late skepticism towards these types of events in the scriptures. All right, so the Lord has laid out his, uh, you know, this people is is so wicked, this people has sinned against my people, it's time for their recompense, it's time for their judgment, says the Lord to Saul through the mouth of Samuel. All right, verse 4. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot. And this is a huge force, of course, and and amongst the hugest we've seen, uh, if not the hugest, uh, that Israel has mustered. Uh, So this is a major force. Again, it's Israel unified. Um, So you've got 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, now this is a wandering nomad people who are in that area. They've got no business with the Amalekites, you know, no guilt. So uh, Saul says to them, go, depart, go down from the, among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you show, showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But, verse 9, here's where the trouble comes. But Saul and the people spared Agag, that is they were to put Agag to death, But they spared him, not because they were merciful, not in the least. They spared Agog and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves. And the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. So the people they destroy, but not the stuff. And the really bad stuff they'll destroy which is sort of like feigned obedience. You know, oh, yeah, we, we did it, Lord. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, but meanwhile, the good stuff, the enriching stuff, they keep for themselves. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. Uh, the, and this, of course, as the study points out, has a parallel in e- Israel's later worship where they become so cynical toward the Lord that, that the Lord rebukes them because what are they bringing to the Lord as their offerings? The weak, and the lame, and the blemished, and the, and the absolute worst from their flocks is what they're giving to the Lord, and they're keeping the best for themselves. In that act, you can see that they are their own gods, and they're just, you know, treating God with contempt and with lip service. And as the study note points out, we run this risk too when we view our offerings in such a way that we simply give God the leftovers. When we spend things when we spend our money primarily on our own pleasures, treating ourselves as gods and then whatever we have left over we, we give to God. Uh, it's, no, it's really in principle no different. Um, so uh, yeah, you, you give up and dedicate to God all that is despised and worthless. Um, meanwhile you keep what is, what is the best for yourself. Of course there's this additional dynamic here uh, in 1 Samuel 15. So verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. And interesting there too, the, just the language, the word. You know, certainly I think we'd have in view here Christ. He came to Samuel and said, I regret that I have made Saul king. It's interesting language throughout. You'll see what I mean as we go on, but this language of regret or relenting, God changing his mind. And you see, you see, almost as an, as a theological aside, chapter fifteen and sixteen that the that the Lord um, both does and doesn't relent. It's very fascinating. Anyway, I regret, I relent uh, um, that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So again, I mean, this goes all the way back to the earlier chapter where. The Lord, through Samuel, establishes Saul and the people. As long as you, you know, follow me and keep my commandments, I'll, I'll be with you. But here Saul has uh, rejected him, not performed his commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Verse 12, And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. You know, so this is great distress to Samuel as the prophet. Of, uh, of God and it was told Samuel Saul came to Carmel this isn't Mount Carmel this is another one down south and behold he set up a monument <laughs> for himself and turned and passed on and went down toward Gilgal so after the Lord gives them this victory over the Amalekites after Saul uh, at, at bare minimum turns a blind side of the people's disobedience Instead of making an altar to the Lord, he makes a monument for himself. So here we see the self-worship, the self-aggrandizement of Saul, and how utterly true it is that he's, he's turned back from following God, and he's not performed God's commandments. He follows himself, and he sees to it that his own commandments are obeyed, and that's it. All right, um, verse 13, And Samuel came to Saul and said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I mean, just look at the, just lying through his teeth. Well, you have one of two options here. And I don't know which is more terrifying. That Saul is just blatantly, knowingly, cynically lying through his teeth. Your other option is that Saul is so self-deluded that he thinks he's telling the truth and he thinks he has a clean con- you know, he, he acts as if he has a clean conscience, and his soul is just utterly destroyed, his conscience is utterly destroyed. Those are kind of your two options, and none is pleasant, neither of them is pleasant. Blessed be, blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. It's the height of uh, cynic- spiritual cynicism and... Um, Deceit or self-deceit? And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Like, in other words, Yeah, you followed the Lord. You destroyed everything. What are my ears telling me? Saul said, They, Ah, so he puts it on the people. They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Now, first of all, is that just a flat-out lie? Um, or is this his way of justifying it? Anyway, the Lord never, never prescribed this. or, or I mean, he, the Lord never, uh, that's the wrong word, the, the Lord never um, demanded that this be the case. He never commanded this. And so again, at bare minimum, you have Saul making up his own rules and Saul making up his own theology which has been the problem the whole way along. So at bare minimum, that's what you have. Um, but anyway, he comes and then he may just be lying outright. So he does lift the blame from himself and says, "'They have brought them from the Amalekites "'for the people spared the best of the sheep "'and the oxen, of course, to sacrifice to the Lord your God.'" Now, he uses the language of the Lord your God and does this throughout. It's an interesting point. Is this simply a matter of respect like that, he, that he's showing and maybe even false respect that he's showing? Or is, is the narrator, is the, is the writer letting us on to the fact that Saul has in fact apostatized um, entirely to the point he can no longer even say your God and my God or our God or my God, but he has to actually say to Samuel, your God? That's an interesting point. I don't, I don't know that you can make one way or another definitive, but uh, it is nonetheless interesting and recurrent that Saul refers to God as. Your God, Samuel. So, yeah, he says the people disobeyed God. I love this. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. That is, the people disobeyed God to sacrifice to God. (laughs) Ha! How's that going to go? Yeah, so this is not good. Not good on the part of the people, too. They should know better. But Saul ultimately bears the responsibility. Then he says, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. All right, well, one more line, and then we're done for the day. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And Saul said to him, speak. Well, it's not going to go well. And you can tell that, you can tell that whether, whether deceiving or self-deceived, either way, Samuel's fed up with it. And he knows that... Um, that Saul is a, is a spiritual disaster and has led his people on the way of spiritual disaster. And he's going to put an end to it right now. And uh, he's going to share with Saul what the Lord has told him. And that'll be our cliffhanger for the next week. The Lord be with you.